I just say your pastors need counseling. <laughs> oh my, we're having a little too much fun with that. Um, you just have to forgive us. What, what a treat. Hey, welcome and so glad you're a part of things here this morning. Uh, we're going to be doing, as we've done the last number of weeks, and taking text message questions about two-thirds of the way through our time together. And so <clears throat> if you want to, don't put that phone away. You can silence it, but don't put it away. And whatever questions you have about our subject that we're talking about, go ahead and fire it into this. And if um, we have enough opportunity, we'll try to get as many in as possible. So make sure that you do that. Here's our cell number up here uh, for you, and you can go ahead and fire away. While you're doing that, grab your copy of the scriptures or your iPod or your iPad or whatever you may have, your iPhone, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 11, 12, and 13 this week. We're talking about being all in, and I'm taking my cell phone all out right now. I don't, last week I got done with, this is just off the side, last week I got done with my message and I was sitting down front, and I'm looking at my, um, my one daughter who's up here in worship team, and she has one of these iPhone watches where all of a sudden it'll pop up and tell you if someone's calling, and I, and I saw her watch lit up. And I said, who would be calling her during the church service? And, uh, and I'm thinking, I, I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out who in the world is calling her during the church service as she's up here singing at the end of the service. Well, wouldn't you know, we get all done. After the service, she comes up to me and she said, Dad, why were you calling me during the church service? <laughs> well, gang, let me tell you, no joke. I don't know what happened during my message, but I looked at my phone afterward. I pocket dialed 12 people. <laughs> I don't and the great thing is, so it left her a voicemail, so we're actually listening to my message on voicemail, and then... I, I dialed her twice, and we listened to one of our songs on voicemail. It's just awesome. So I'm taking it out, okay? Um, and there it is. I'm not going to touch it the rest of our time. Oh, my. Remember that counseling thing I talked about? So Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Last week, we started with a phrase that is an axiom of the Christian life. And here's what it is. And this needs to sink in. It really needs to go through us, what God does for us shouldn't end with us. And think about that. God doesn't do things for us, so that way we're just, oh, that was just for me, and I don't have to do anything else with it. But God does things for us because there is a perspective and an opportunity that we're supposed to take some of what we've learned or been given or whatever, and we turn around and we give it to others. And last week we came up with a couple of very pertinent stories of what God did for people and they turn around and they did it for others. And then we talked about the reality that we need to show love to others the way that Jesus showed us and that was John chapter 13. He says, even by this, all men will know that you are my followers if you love one another. And so today we bring it up again. What God does for us shouldn't end with us. When God gets us through challenges, it's not merely to give us relief, but it's so we can be involved now in giving others relief. When God blesses us with extra, it's often not so we can stockpile our abundance, but so that we can help others. 
When God gives us talents and abilities, it's often for the benefit and encouragement of other people. And so what God does for us shouldn't end with us. And never more than now does this truth ring out to us in our text today in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to be working through our discussion just a little bit differently than what I normally do. And I'm just going to be open with you. This was a hard week of study. This is something different for me that I'm dealing with this morning in this text. And, and it's been a little uncomfortable to be truthful to, um, to, to work through this and contextualize it for us. And so I'm just praying to God that he'll really help it come across. And in my weakness, his strength is seen and made perfect. So um, this was different. This message blew me away. My paradigm of church development has morphed somewhat. And, and to be honest, I'm still processing some of this. And so I lay it out for all of us to process it together as we think about this. Let me, let me launch a couple of questions to start out. When are we ready to serve? When are we ready to share? What do we need to have to serve? I got thinking about it because some people I've heard say, you know what, I, I'm not ready to serve, I'm not equipped to serve. I'm not ready to share because I'm not equipped to share. And I got thinking about that this week. And... Um, you know, some, some people even say this, couples do in relationship to having their children. We want to be ready to be parents before we have them. Okay, you're a parent. Are you ever truly ready? Now, my wife and I talked about this as we were engaged and how long we want to wait and we want to have a firm foundation in our relationship and be really stable. and We want to have a certain amount of money stockpiled that way we can give the children what they need to have. And so um, we ended up getting married, and it was a, we waited, wow, it was a solid maybe eight weeks. <laughs> and then we found out we were pregnant. So we had all of that then set, and there we were ready to go for the rest of it. No, no, we were not ready. And I don't even know if we waited 20 years if we would be ready but when are we ready to serve? When are we ready to step in? What point can we say, okay, I am ready to go now and I can share? And that's what Ephesians 4 is all about and maybe a little differently than what we've thought of in the past. So let's look at the passage together. Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to show you um, three verses and we're going to talk about these and and move through in a very unique way here this morning and get ready with those text questions. Notice verse 11 in Ephesians 4 says, So Christ himself, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Christ himself gave. And catch this this morning. Christ himself gave, and it goes through four categories of church leadership and in particular, because it deals with our ministry today, he gave, Christ himself gave 
pastor, and technically this is one category, pastor teachers, shepherd teachers. Christ himself gave those to the church. Think about that for a moment. And I want to I encourage you and caution you, if ever you get into a spat with a pastor at some point in time, and you want to give a real zinger of a one-liner to get him at the end, don't say this to him. Well, who do you think you are? God's gift to the church? Actually, yeah. <laughs> and there's a chapter and verse for it. And he gave pastors to the church. But the big deal is not that he gave pastors, but here's the big deal. Why? So look at this with me, if you would. Here's why he gave pastors to the church, verse 12. And here's where we're going to do a little bit of study together. I told you it'd be a little bit different. He gave pastor teachers to the church, verse 12, to equip. Does your translation say equip? Some say equip, some say prepare. And so probably those two words cover most translations here this morning. To equip or to prepare his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The big deal of the text isn't that he gave pastors, but why he gave them. And here's the big word I want to work through just for the next few moments. This is going to be a little bit of study class here this morning as some things pop up on the screen. Here's this word equip. To equip or to prepare. And, and be prepared here. We're going to work through some of these words. This word equip in its original language is found nowhere else in the New Testament. Nowhere in this form. And actually, it is found in a few other places, though, in, its, in a verb form, a cousin verb form to this. And I want to take you through these because really when I started to look at these, it began to shift a little bit of how I view the word equip. And my role even specifically as a pastor here and our other pastors here at East Bay Calvary. I want to show you some verses and I, and I want us to write down how these are in our worship folder that you have on your study guide. Let's think about this. Matthew 4.21 is one word where the cousin word to equip is used. And notice how it it reads, it says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. Now, some translations say preparing, and I want to tell you how they were preparing, because other translations describe that for us. They were mending. And so here's a word for us, this same word equip in its cousin form it means mending or preparing the idea is there have been nets that have been damaged from use and they have holes in them and you're not just going to go out and go fishing and throw these nets out with holes in them because you know what's going to happen there with your fishing ability your intake is going to go down if there's holes in the net and so he says you need to mend the nets or prepare the nets, and that's this cousin word for equipping, mending or preparing. Here's another verse that uses the same cousin word 
for equipping, and it's in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Check this out, and you're going to see the word used in a little different way. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, and here's the word, should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. And so here's this word that was translated prepare or equip in verse uh, 12, and now he's coming out in, in Galatians 6.1. He says, I want you to see the way that this is used, it is used as in restoring someone, someone whose condition is now brought back to a position of usefulness. I'm going to restore you. you. You've gone through challenges. You've gone through problems. And in this case, they're even involved in a sinful pattern or behavior. And they are brought back to a condition of usefulness to restore. So he uses the same word elsewhere for mending. He uses the same word elsewhere for restoring. And here's a third use in Hebrews 11, 3 talking about God's creation and he says by faith we understand that the universe was formed some translations say shaped they were shaped they were in a position or a condition that was not ready not useful but then they were shaped at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible Hebrews eleven three. I want to help us wrap our mind around a little different bent of this word equip. Because I look at it and I see equip and I think of the word equipment. And I've thought of this word in a little more um, institutional way. Where you know what, here's people and they're pretty much all set and they're Christians and they need to have a little bit more. They don't know enough. And I need to give them more to be able to handle some things or else they really can't serve. But here's that first phrase I want to give us to think about. It's the first truth I want to pop into our minds here this morning. God gives me pastors to help mend. To help mend my life. God gives me pastors to help mend my life or shape my life or restore my life. I always viewed equipping as kind of a collegiate thing. You know, like a person's doing well, but they need to be equipped with maybe some other tips or tools. But as I looked at this word for equip and thought of it in the context of equipment or tools, I know that there's some validity to that logically, but in the end, there is a strong suggestion from the usage of this word elsewhere that ultimately the best tool for us to reach each other and reach our world is that of a mended, restored or shaped life. There's this concept and the strong suggestion our broken state keeps us from effective service to the family of God and our world. And that the ultimate equipment that is needed 
to reach our world and reach each other is to be mended personally or restored into the person God has designed us to be. And so the goal of pastors in ministry as we work with God's people is to focus on who they are being, not merely just what they are knowing. It's the condition of our lives that this text is ultimately concerned with. Now, just I want, I want to support this here, and I know that we're dealing with this in a little more of a study format, but notice as we work down through, look at verse 14. Here, what is this equipment supposed to do? And contextually, you're going to see all the things that are restored or mended as we work through it. In verse 14, there's the issue of restoring or mending wrong thinking about God or wrong teaching. And you see that the people won't be blown back and forth by every wind of teaching. Continue on and you're going to see if I can work as quickly through the context. Look at verse 22. He tells them, I, I want you to learn to put off. If you go down, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Put off your old self, corrupted by its deceitful desires. Verse 24, put on the new self. Verse 25, put off falsehood, speak truthfully. Verse 26, be careful in your anger, do not sin. Verse 28, don't steal. Verse 29, no unwholesome talk. 31, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, be kind, compassionate, forgiving. Continue right along, chapter 5, verse 1, make sure you walk in the way of love. Verse 3, be careful not a hint of any sexual immorality or impurity or greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, and it continues on because in chapter 6, it talks about how children should be, how wives should be, how husbands should be, how parents should be, how employees should be. And so basically, this passage is saying, you know what? Our primary need personally, if we are to be active in equipping God's people, is to be thinking about, from a pastor's standpoint, their life. That we need to be whole. We need to be mended. We need to be brought to a condition personally where I'm right with the Lord, and that's the primary equipment that he uses in service. I just want to give you two things. I'm going to move on to the second thing and then get ready with your text message questions here just a second. I don't know how to say this any different to you. Um, your pastors really care about you. We love the church organization. We love the facility God's given us. But we exist as pastors for people, for saints, for mending. And can I also say with that, not only do we love you, all of us are broken one way or another. Can I get an amen on that one? All of us. All of us, if you remember from a number of weeks ago, all of us have cracked pots. All of us have flaws. And we care about that here. We really do. This isn't about let's just keep the mechanism going or the machinery of ministry going. We care about people. We want people to be connected with God and to have a good 
relationship with him and experience the blessing of a life lived the way that he wants. And then let me say that if you are brand new here, we care about authenticity and being real, not religiosity, not ceremony. We think about sincerity. And, and our desire here is really that we just come, as Billy Graham would have sung at all of his services, just as I am, the way that God can really use us. And if you care about authenticity and you care about being mended and repaired to be able to impact others, this is the place for you. Because those are the things we care about. Number one, number one, Christ gives me pastors to help mend my life. Here's number two. Why? Why does Christ give our pastors to help mend our lives? Here's why. Christ gives me a mended life to help grow the church. Let me just show you how this works. In verse 12, he gives pastor teachers to equip his people, and notice why. So there's a mending, there's a restoring that takes place, equips them for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Here's the main truth. You are crucial to the body, to the church, to each other, growing to be the people God wants you to be. And to follow it up, you just go on down, say verse 16. Look at what it says there. From Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, catch this phrase, grows and builds itself up in love. We grow and build ourselves up in love as each part does its work. Your part is critical to the growth of the body, your mended life is so vital to helping others grow here. And God gives us a mended life to help grow his church. Francis Falk said it this way in his work on Ephesians. He says, they're being brought to this conclusion of mended or restored is not an end in itself. Remember, what God does for us doesn't end with us. God doesn't mend us just for us, but for a purpose. That we may be fitted to help others mend. Remember, what God does for us doesn't end with us. And it only makes sense. A net with tears in it doesn't catch fish. A, a broken arm does not serve well. Mend. And suture and mend the net. That way we can catch. That way we can serve. It's interesting. I've talked to some people in my time as a ministry, and I, I've heard people say, you know what? I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God, but I really can't help others be a child of God without special training. I understand to some degree. However, and here's another one I heard. I've been through big challenges in my life. People mentioned divorce, kids left home, financial ruin, cancer, addictions, but then they're like, but I really can't help others because I haven't had special training. And, and, and I'm just going to put out what I'm becoming more and more passionate about. I'm not against special training. I'm not against 
beautiful preparation beyond. I've gotten it. It can help, but I'm growing increasingly passionate about the church people not looking beyond the reality that when God mends your net, he wants you to fish. When he restores your life, he wants to help use you to restore each other now. When he shapes your life, he wants you to help shape others now. And that your part of this building, this body of Christ, needs to happen right now. And when I was thinking through this, I was thinking of John 9. And what had happened there, Jesus had come to a blind man. He was, he was born blind. His parents were around. And it was on the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do anything. And back then in that Jewish culture, and according to Old Testament law, you weren't supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And Jesus healed this man born blind on the Sabbath. And so there was a bunch of religious people that were really upset. And how dare he heal this man of his blindness on the Sabbath? And so they were trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story, but the Pharisees went to the man born blind and he said, okay, what's up with this guy that healed you? Tell us about, is he a prophet? Is he a false prophet? What's going on? And you remember what the man born blind said? I have no idea. I don't know if he's a prophet. I don't know what the deal is. But he says, I'm here to tell you one thing. I was blind. And now I can see. He didn't know all the extra special stuff. But he had a story. And God used his story, actually, to infuriate the Pharisees. But also to help other people see Jesus is real. I've heard some people say, you know what, I can't share the gospel. I don't know all the Bible references. I'm terrible at memorization, so I can't share the gospel. You know, I don't know the Romans road. I, I don't know the, well, let me just tell you, you may not know the Romans road, but if you know how to get to where it's going, just tell someone, I don't know, I don't know the street signs, just follow me, I'll show you how to get there. God can use your story of your mended life to help build and equip the people around you in this church and also the people in our community. I want to give you these three things, and then it's time for uh, text message questions. Um, here's what growth includes. How do we grow? What happens when we grow the church? Notice verse 13. He gives pastor teachers to help mend, restore God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 13, what's, gonna, that, what's that going to look like until we all reach unity in the faith? When we get together and we share our stories, we bind together in a profound connectedness based upon shared and deeply loved beliefs. Here's letter B. Not only is there a unity in the faith, this is, this is great, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, not just knowing things about him. This is not mere systematic theology, but we get to know the person of Jesus. Together, we get to billboard his goodness to us. 
And then letter C, there's this maturity or attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ to live the way Jesus lived. It's this whole idea we're better disciples, where the totality of our being is maturing to be like Jesus Christ. And that's what happens when we build into each other, when we share our stories of restoration and mending with each other. God uses those things to help grow our church. I have more for you at the end, but I'm curious what you have for me right now with text message questions. Our text uh, number is 231-492-5673. And um, we do have some questions, I believe, that have popped in. And let's see what they are. Um, Thank you. This is a question from two weeks ago, and we didn't get to it, and I feel it is appropriate to handle today. So this is where we're all at. I am not all in at times because I'm afraid I don't possess the skills to represent. I'm not all in at times because I'm afraid I don't possess the skills to represent. I understand. I understand that sometimes it's intimidating. But let me just share with you, I don't know that a skill is needed so much as a story is needed. So much as you share, here's who I am, this is what God has done for me, I don't think you need a special skill to be able to share what God has done for your life. And to be able to, um, I think you can represent Jesus well just by telling how good he's been to you, even if you don't have all these other special things going on in skills that we would think of. That was one question. Thank you for bringing that up. Do we have anything else up there? I mean, if not, I'm fine with that, people. I really am. Uh, When it says teacher in verse 11, does that mean specifically pastors, or does it include others who teach in the church, ABF, teachers, Sunday school teachers, et cetera? Boy, that's an interesting question. Um, From what I understand, these are four categories of church leaders. And so what is mentioned by the apostle, he mentions some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and there is no and or article, pastors and teachers. It is a slash pastor teachers. And it's really talking in here not to devalue anyone else who teaches in church ministry. All are needed. But here it's talking about the office of pastor-teacher. They're a shepherd-teacher. So that's a great technical question. I appreciate that. Um, Let me tell you, it doesn't mean that what happens in other classes with other teaching are not as valuable. They certainly are. But here it's talking about an office, a specific office of pastor-teacher. Good question. What else we got? How should we respond in grace to the rare pastor teachers who step away um, from the authority of scripture for their own agenda that is a really good question i don't know what do you think no just kidding um um if pastors step away from the authority of scripture 
let me tell you, the whole church is in a bind. And I've already said it publicly, if I step away from the authority of Scripture, folks, I, I want 500 people following me back to my office on Sunday, and um, each of you take a turn, you know, smack me around a little bit. In Christian love. But we're gutting ourselves of the power of God unto salvation when we walk away from the truth and the clarity of the scriptures and the authority of the gospel. So how should we respond in grace? And I would say, go to them. Go to them. Um, explain where you are. Hopefully they would be approachable, teachable, and then... Um, and if they're, and be specific. And then also, if that doesn't work, the scriptures actually give some recommendation that then maybe go to another elder. And that's why I love that we have a biblical church polity of, of a plurality of elders. And you present your case and talk to them. And, and sometimes the pastor may need to, to adjust. And sometimes you may find out that maybe. You need to adjust. But with this plurality of leaders, that gives us the opportunity for someone or maybe all to make the adjustment to be able to be back on the same page and all in together. So that's a great one. I will tell you a few things to not say to a pastor. I actually wrote these down. I, I read this recently. <clears throat> the top four things to never say to your pastor after the message. Number one, you always manage to find something to fill up that time. <laughs> Number two, I don't care what they say. I like your sermons. <laughs> Number three, to not say to a pastor after the message, did you know there's 243 panes of glass in the windows? <clears throat> <clears throat> Number four, if I'd known you were going to be good today, I would have brought my neighbor. That's not a good one. <clears throat> Grace, I think, is a great word in there. Um, in that question, grace. And that grace needs to go in every direction. You notice when we talk about um, Galatians 6.1, about restoring, restore them gently. Restore them gently. And I, I, that's a great word for God's church is grace. What else we got? <clears throat> One more. Where does a pastor go? Oh, that's a great thought. Pastors need pastors. Pastors need pastors. Um, where does a pastor go besides the Lord to mend his life? And I'm blessed to have three other pastors on staff with me who all have an open-door policy with me. I'm also blessed to have elders and other leaders that are identified biblically as lay pastors that can come to me and talk to me. And then beyond that, <clears throat> it's important to have a mentor and someone that you would look up to <clears throat> um, to help mend my life. And, and I'll just be truthful. Pastors need mending too. I know we're shepherds, but the weird thing is we're also sheep. And um, we're following the same Jesus you are. It's just he set us up to be able to help um, with some of this. I, I'm sure there's other questions. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm not going to be able to get to any more. 
I want to give you these final things in conclusion. We're going to finish up here. Major truths to consider. Number one, start with your primary tool. Your mended life. Some people say, man, I wish I had more training. I wish I knew more Bible verses. I, and you can. <laughs> you can get all of that, and that's, there's nothing wrong with it. But let me tell you, you can have all the training in the world, but your mended life is the best tool, the primary tool you can have. You start with your marriage. Start with your habits. Start with your parenting, your yieldedness, your attitude, and work with the body here to focus on getting our life where it needs to be with God. Focus on any hole in the net that could keep our service from God being effective. And we know 1 Corinthians 13 says, you know what, if you have all knowledge but you don't have love, we're nothing. And we need to start with our primary tool, our story of mending, and let God use that in his church. Here's number two. I believe this wholeheartedly. God doesn't grow the church through programs, but through people as they love. We're God's program for reaching our world. We're God's program for growing the believers in the church. There's no program that's better than our people. And this is why one of our five initiatives for 2018 involves a re- building and a growing of our small group ministry that's going to boom in the fall. And here's my challenge for you. I'm just going to lay it out. I want you to be a part of it. And I know some people are already saying, be part of a small group, but that's going to be scary. Yeah, I know. But I don't know if I'm equipped for a small group. Oh, you are. You have a story. And God needs... The church, he has designed in his church that the people are the critical element to its growth and development. There is no program, it's not small group program that's going to do it, but we are looking a way to assemble our people to have a major import into each other's lives and to help grow each other. And that's one way that we're looking to do it. And then here's the last one I want to give you. Let God use who you are now to grow his church. Can I just be plain and blunt? We need you. We can't be all we can be without you. Every part of the church is critical and we need your story, we need your influence, we need you to be all in. And when we're all, all in, God can grow us better to be more like Jesus when we are all in. And when we all are all in, he can use us then even to make more. And that's ultimately what this is about, is more and better. I want to finish by telling you about one man God put in my life 21 years ago. 
And his name is Charlie Peters. I did his funeral a year and a half ago, back uh, February of 2017. Charlie's childhood was rough. He went through abuse. And his childhood being rough certainly extended into his adult years. He'd experienced marital failure. His reputation in the community just frankly stunk. And things went from bad to worse for him. He was an alcoholic, and he was more than just an alcoholic. He was the town drunk. He was the one everyone would point to who could not be sober, and he ended up becoming homeless. He ended up becoming addicted to other things. He would say, as he said, stupid talk, and he would end up getting into fights. And his other quote he would say to me, he would say he was young and dumb. Young and dumb. And then he'd joke and he'd say, now I'm just old and dumb. He'd say. And then 31 years ago, he met a woman by the name of Alice who had also gotten away from Jesus. And of all places where they met, you ready for this one? They met at a dance hall. And he didn't know how to dance. But he ended up, after they met and they were talking, she said, you know what? I don't want to screw this up again. How about we start going to church? And so they did. He called her up that Sunday and said, let's go to church. And they went every week thereafter. Not only did God change their marital status, God changed their lives. And Charlie accepted Jesus as his personal Savior, and I'm going to tell you, his last 30 years of his life was a complete 180 from the first 57. I'm telling you about Charlie because here's the whole deal. Charlie didn't have a high school education. Charlie was not eloquent at all with his words. Charlie couldn't even tell you a whole lot of Bible verses and their references. And we could probably beat him in a theology exam. But I'm going to tell you one thing about Charlie. He had a story. And it was compelling. And he used it to encourage other people to come to Jesus and to give their life to him. And here was his whole story. He said, you know what? There's nothing you've done that's worse than what I've done. I was the town drunk. I left my family. I left my kids. I left my finances. I left my job. I even lost my home. I lost it all. And then when Jesus came into my life, he gave me everything I needed back. And my life has been different these last 30 years. And he used his story. And this guy helped build up the body of Christ. And that could be you too. When we're all in, and we're all, all in. God can use us. Father, I pray. This is just another puzzle piece in our discussion of being all in, but use it, Lord.
God, would you strip excuses from us? The excuses that I don't know enough or I can't say it well or I just don't know if I'm ready. God, just strip all of that from us. And God, help us to look inside what has been mended, what has been restored. What have you repaired in us? And God, please use the platform of you changing our lives to be a way that we build into each other's lives and build into the lives of those who need to know you and trust in Jesus as their forgiver and their leader. Use us. Father, I don't know if I'm utopian, if I'm asking too much, but God, would you prick every heart in East Bay Calvary Church to all of us be all in. That none of us would hide it under a bushel, but that we would let our light so shine before men. They'll see it, and that they'll glorify our Father in heaven. Help us all to be all in. And all for you. And all of you speak Calvary said. little different style message. Thanks for reflection with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, God wants to use you now, not later. And I got thinking for all the big one another's of the Bible, which ones can we do now? Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, all of that with no extra training required. Isn't that some? Build up the body of Christ. Let's be all in together. God bless you. Next Sunday, my favorite speaker of all time is going to be with us, Ken Rudolph. He was with us last year, and I can't wait for him to be a part of our ministry next week. And it's Father's Day, too. Wait till you dad see what we have for you. Hey, enjoy your week. God bless you.